Hello, this is Chris Bandini, your uh, host today on New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today we'll be speaking with Emily Karloff. Uh, Dr. Karloff is a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute in New York, where she is also the director of clinical education. She is the special issues editor for the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis. Hello, this is Chris Bandini, your uh, host today on New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today we'll be speaking with Emily Karloff. Uh, Dr. Karloff is a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute in New York, where she is also the director of clinical education. She is the special issues editor for the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis and its former book review editor. Dr. Karloff is the author of numerous journal articles exploring the interpersonal psychoanalytic tradition, the history of psychoanalysis, and comparative models of technique and therapeutic action. Her recent book, Contemporary Psychoanalysis and the Legacy of the Third Reich, History, Memory, and Tradition, uh, Rutledge 2014, uses unpublished original source materials and current interviews with prominent emigre and survivor analysts to formulate ways in which the Shoah trauma infused and has shaped major theories and praxis of psychoanalysis. So uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Karloff. I'll call you Emily. That's yes, okay. please do. And um, what we like to do on uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis, uh, usually our first question is to ask uh, the authors uh, what led uh, you to, re- to write this book. Um, so nice to, to talk with you. Thank you. Um, what led me to write this book, I think, is that one day it occurred to me that I had two obsessions, one being psychoanalysis and the other my family. And uh, I started to note that my family and my quote-unquote family of psychoanalysts, that is the founding fathers and mothers of a tradition, had very similar roots. That is, they were Jewish Europeans who were products of the Enlightenment and the hope for a more universal acceptance of them as minorities and they were sort of drunk with the possibilities of um, of science, of, of higher education, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were beset with like the scourge of, of the Shoah. And I knew that it had completely altered my family's life um, individually and collectively and became an intergenerational trauma um, with a bunch of different narratives. And I thought, I wonder what my psychoanalytic family suffered. And I started to find these amazing links between um, theory and, and, and praxis and the politics of psychoanalysis as all of these things were affected by um, this catast- catastrophe in the, in the midst of its birth. And development. Uh, there are so many, so many interesting aspects of the book. Um, certainly, one of the things that really struck me was the effect of theory uh, uh, by the migra- by the migration of the analyst to the United States and to different parts of the world, and uh, how interesting that was. So, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think that one of the one of the things about trauma that we we all kind of know well, uh, but it's still, un, you know, it's still profound, is that it's it's too big to process, too big to mentalize, let alone process. 
too big for words. So it tends to be enacted by its very definition. And I actually felt that some of the trauma of psychoanalysis was enacted in the theory or what became the theory. Uh, when I studied the ego psychologists, um, the so-called ego psychologists, Lowenstein, Hartman, and Chris, and I was able to get a hold of interviews uh, done by a social worker, of course, not a psychiatrist, a social worker, would be the only person who was really interested in context in those days. <laughs> Thank goodness she did. Her, her name was uh, Bluma Swirldoff. I think I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Um, she interviewed them, and it was remarkable that, the first of all, the reluctance to talk about their personal history at all costs, at all costs, and their denial of any kind of difficulty um, even though many of them had trouble emigrating, they were cast out and made pariahs first and lost family and friends and uh, really made very little of what happened. But moreover, what I started to notice, which has been noticed before, is this kind of um, reification of, of theory and mechanization of the mind with without any room for... Uh, the, without any room, again, that word context comes in, without any room for context, without any consideration of culture, um, and without, also, without any, um, opportunities for new ideas to find their place. And I attributed that over time in the book a lot to many things, because nothing's, everything's overdetermined, but, in part to a kind of reification of Freud and to the European psychoanalysis as they saw it um, needing to be preserved, needing to be reified, needing to be sort of a talisman, as McCary would call it. Uh, George McCary wrote a really good book about the history of psychoanalysis. And it wasn't a living, breathing thing the way it had been. Um, in fact, European psychoanalysis originally before the Shoah was very, very interested in cultural critique and very, and, and, and interested in, in sort of, um, questioning authority and questioning the norm. And post-war, it became very medicalized, very, um, re- as I said, reified, very mechanized. The, the American psychoanalysts, uh, got involved with the, um, American Medical Association, which was very respectable and mainstream. And theory could not be challenged. Um, it was like they had to preserve it as a response to the loss. And also the other response to the loss is that you couldn't talk about contracts because if you talked about contacts and you talked about the social being and the relational being, then you would have to inevitably bump up against the, the tragedy and, and the catastrophe. And that was anathema, anathema to them. They wanted to rebuild. They wanted to move on, which to some degree is perfectly understandable and adaptive, but it took its toll and may have been compulsive to a degree. Um, certainly for the first, for the, for the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, if you weren't an ego psychologist or if you weren't, you know, you weren't in the main American institutes in America, you were, um, you were nowhere. That's that's changed, but it's taken such a long time. 
Yes, it's striking that uh, in, a, in an effort to preserve uh, perhaps a, a pure form of psychoanalysis, maybe because of the fear that they would lose it in their migration, uh, that they uh, it really became kind of a kind of, as you're saying, more structured and more rigid and that this led to a kind of an ego psychology. I think one of the things you spoke out in your, in your book was that maybe some of the um, the theory of ego psychology came from the sense of kind of making it in a new world. Uh-huh. Adaptation. Yeah, I don't just think that they thought they were going to lose it in migration. I think they felt like they'd lost everything. And psychoanalysis they clung to with their fingernails and also as a denial or an avoidance of the loss, which is what, I, what in fact, a talisman comes. But what, what it, the, the, um, the function a talisman serves. But absolutely, I think that this focus on adaptation certainly had – had to have, at some level, conscious or unconscious, been connected to the fact that all these people were adapting with great difficulty some. I mean, Lowenstein admitted in one of the interviews that he didn't even really know how to speak English when he started doing psychoanalysis. Um, you know, uh, Heinz Hartman's wife, Dora Hartman, who was a pediatrician who he trained as an analyst, was more open about how hard things were. And how difficult, but then she quickly added, but that has nothing to do with my professional life. So there was this sort of area, the equivalent of the quote-unquote conflict-free sphere of the ego, which has sort of been debunked. I think that was a wish, you know, that there was this safe place to be in the midst of utter unsafety, danger, chaos, everything on its head. Um, I think you can, you know, I also in the book talk about what happened in England between Klein and and Freud, Melanie Klein and Anna Freud. Now, of course, the the problem predated um, the Shoah, and I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm reducing all of the richness and complexity of psychoanalytic theory and practice across continents to one factor. That would be, if that's the way people feel about it, that would be a failure for me. But in addition to all the other motives and ideas and and issues um the um it occurs to me that and i think it occurred to a few people but not many that um while melanie klein and anna freud were duking it out when i say duking it out i mean it was ugly and for some reason somebody recorded the the extraordinary business meeting so you can read about it um, actually, Steiner and King, and it's it's full of vitriol, and it's very personal. And as they were doing that, the bombs were falling. Um, it was the Blitzkrieg, or actually right after the Blitzkrieg, and occasional bombs continued to fall after that for, for years. And nobody would acknowledge that they were in the midst of, you know, total war. And I think, in part, it felt... It felt more manageable to bring it into theory and praxis. It, it gave the false sense of um, of control, but it also, in many ways, nearly ruined psychoanalysis in England. I mean, they managed to preserve the institute by creating three tracks, Freudian, Kleinian, but a lot of people were disaffected and left. Gregory Cohen writes about that, and Anna Freud. Uh, was so was so discouraged that she stopped being interested in England at all and just set her sights only on America and American psychoanalysis. Um, so 
I think that's something that most people never talk about. And in it, during the um, extraordinary meetings, one woman did, a woman named Sylvia Payne, said, you know, don't you think this has something to do with what's going on? And Winnicott, of course, who was very interested in the environment and was too creative a thinker to align himself with one individual or another because he had such a big mind. Um, at one point, when people are screaming and yelling, he interrupts and says, I'd like to point out, point out that there's an air raid going on. But mm-hmm. nobody really, Phyllis Grosskirk tells that story. She was there. But nobody, yeah, but nobody, nobody stopped. It was more important for them to talk about theory and to avoid and ignore what's happening with them, even if it meant their, their, their professional, you know, injury and demise. Uh, yeah, there are so many great anecdotes in the book and uh, also about the, um, I guess, the legacy of psychoanalysis, both in the, in the people who came over uh, to who migrated to different countries, but also in, a, in a, the second generation of, of people who became uh, analysts, uh, the, the, the children of some of these analysts who, who migrated as well. Right. Well, I mean, the book is not all about how trauma destroyed psychoanalysis. Um, that would also be reductionist and judgmental. And like I say, there is, and Bromberg talks about this, there is adaptive dissociation. If we remembered everything, especially disturbing, uh, unsettling things all the time, we wouldn't be able to function. Um, and um, so, you know, somebody like Henry Crystal, whose name is known finally, but it wasn't mm-hmm. in the heyday of uh, mainstream psychoanalysis in America, for example. He's, he was from Poland. He was in Auschwitz and other camps and work camps. Um, was the only person who wrote about trauma in psychoanalysis. He was trained at the De- Detroit Institute. But really, trauma and trauma theory was an utterly separate area of exploration in psychiatry and none of the psychiatrists in trauma spoke to the psychoanalysts and none of the psychoanalysts spoke to the trauma workers and that was because it felt like a threat again to this reified notion of the structural hypothesis you know so that the talisman of Freud's contribution could be saved amidst the ruin um, and so Henry, Henry Crystal really challenged that, and he studied trauma victims. And he, even though he was fully trained as an analyst, the people around him insisted that he could call what he did psychotherapy and only psychotherapy, not psychoanalysis, because it dealt with what really happened. Um, but I think here was somebody, maybe because he was so young during the war, so he didn't feel the same allegiance to the original um you know, mentors or the original writers as the older people. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't have the the identity as as a pre-war psychoanal- psychoanalyst. He really trained after the wall in America. Was able to to really talk about the profound impact of trauma in childhood, but also in adulthood. He called it massive psychic trauma, um, and you know that that would override developmental theories. Um, alone, or the notion of invariant progression. Um, so he, w- and then there are people who are younger. I mean, another person is Anna Ornstein, who, you know, Kohut actually, who Ornstein was Kohut's really voice, her and Paul Ornstein. 
um, were Kohut's voice. And um, Kohut was not so able to um, address the Shoah directly, although his son, Thomas Kohut, who's a psychoanalyst and, and a his, professor of history historian at Williams College, who's very interested in this issue as both a historian and an analyst, insists that his father's um, theory is um, grows out of a, a really fragmented self that was developed after he, as a enlightened, um, optimistic Jew in, uh, you know, early 20th century uh, Austria, who could have all the same educational opportunities as the, as the non-Jews, and really was so Viennese and so proud of Viennese culture, and then was kicked out on fear of death and barely got his mother out um, in time, that he really became split. He really became frag- split, doesn't capture it. He became fragmented, and of course then he developed a theory of a cohesive self, enduring self. Um, and he actually he did say, and this is in my book, to a journalist once, um, I've lived to- two totally separate lives. And of course, Tom adds, Thomas Cohart, that it was the most profound narcissistic injury to have been so a part of a culture that you so valued and studied and then to be completely rejected and made a pariah. Um, but Kohut, you could say that Kohut's focused on the self as a separate developmental line, separate, you know, from instinct, um, from sexuality and aggression, um, was a great contribution. In other ways, Kohut was an example, I think, of somebody who avoided and ignored the traumatic impact of the Shoah, and a lot of patients who came to analysts, especially because analysts were European and spoke a number of languages, many of them spoke um, German, some spoke French, some even spoke Yiddish, Um, they would come for help to these international people because they had had Shoah trauma and they didn't get any help. Mm -hmm. It was really poignant because their Oedipal pathology was being um, interpreted when they really needed to talk about um, their massive psychic trauma um, and their and all their the problems of immigration too. I mean, I think that um, and Ornstein tells the story of giving her analyst a copy of the story of her life in Auschwitz, and he gave it back to her and said, "I don't read these things." Mm-hmm. And she gave it to the secretary and said, "Keep it anyway." Which was great because that's the kind of person she is. She's so brave and she's so honest and she's such a survivor um, and so able to connect. But what about the people who didn't have that stamina and that relatedness? Um, and actually Martin Bergman talks about that. I interviewed Martin Bergman about four different times around this because he was one of the pioneers who began to address um, um, the impact of, of the Shoah and 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 Bergman actually addresses the fact that he tried to help people um, who came to him, and you know he spoke he spoke um, Czech, Hebrew, English, and German. So he would get a lot of these people. He he immigrated with his family from Prague um, to Israel, um, but and he was came from an educated um, Prague family that spoke German, um, but. 
that he, when he noticed they weren't getting better. Um, now, there's an interesting twist to that. So he said, I've got to do something different because these people are not getting better. They're getting worse when I do the usual interpretive, you know, service to depth, you know. Yes. Um, and so he, but the interesting thing is when I spoke with him, I asked him how he thought the show affected him. And he said it didn't affect him. He was just being pragmatic. He was trying to be a good doctor. So there there it was, again, this kind of needing to move away from the impact of private experience, a subjective experience on his work and his thoughts. And actually, um, I you know, this is a positivist view that he was in some way trained with in the early part of the century. And this this belief in science as being universal and objective, which was a good thing for Jews to believe because then they could transcend their Jewishness, which had plagued mm-hmm. them for centuries in their European homeland. But no matter how many times I tried to suggest that maybe he was interested in the Shoah because he had came from a European Jewish family, he said, no, my we emigrated before the Shoah. His father, Hugo Bergman, was a famous philosopher and best friends with, with Kafka, by the way, and he was invited in the in the 20s to go and open the um, the philosophy department at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, his all of his father's close family were killed, um, but he said that wasn't important to him. Martin said uh, only later, and this is also, I think, another big part of the book. You know, because as a as a as an interpersonal relational analyst, I am of the belief that. Meaning is a relational event, which I think actually is a quote from Don Stern, um, whose series my book is published in. And um, so that, you know, it's not just insight, clearly. We know we all know this now, but it's not just knowing the answer as if there were one answer, but it's the quality of relatedness that determines what people are able to think and know. And so at one point he asked me, you know, with delight and surprise why I was so interested in the Shoah since I was from such a different generation. And I, be, he said he didn't know anyone in in my generation who was as interested as I. And that this conversation, by the way, is in my book because I'm trying to illustrate a process, which was that I told him about my grandmother who whose family was killed and who was a fr- Polish-French Jew and who raised me. She was my only babysitter. And and he became very intrigued, and he became very um, warm and connected to me on a much more human level, not on an ideational level and a you know sort of intellectual dueling level. And I said to him at a certain juncture, "If if my past influences my interest, how about you?" And then he sort of said, "Ah," and he got it. He got it. So there was this kind of um, relational shift that created the space, what that Nazi Heidegger would call the clearing. And I think Heidegger, who was a Nazi sympathizer, is the best example of his theory, which is that meaning is contextual, because here this brilliant man became a Nazi sympathizer when he was imbued with Nazism in his midst. Um, and maybe otherwise wouldn't have been, which is sort of an Eric Fromian idea, another analyst who helped st- helped with the White Institute and and was very much a German who was ousted, to say the least. Ousted isn't really the right word. Kicked out, 
<laughs> made extinct. Um, so, um, so I think that the book also in the interviews with these prominent people who interview, who influence theory and technique so much, I think the interviews themselves show a process of making new meaning, a process that wasn't open to any of us after the Shoah and for a large part of the time that psychoanalysis was was um, developing in the Western world, because my book also covers England, as I mentioned, but also France. I also talk about Germany, yes. which Israel. is an Israel. The Israeli story is really poignant and moving because uh, most of the you know most of the refugees went to Israel, um, and they were ignored. Um, Yiddish was seen as the language of the dead. It was looked down upon. Um, the, um, being a European Jew was, um, associated with being a victim. Um, being a European Jew was associated with having, um, made the wrong choices, um, when they should have come to Israel. And so these people were really isolated. Some of them were committed to mental hospitals. Um, they were, some of the children who had survived were brought to the Berlin. Oh, see, I made a slip, but it's it's understandable. The Jerusalem Psychoanalytic Institute, which they called the third Ber- they, this, the 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 um, third generation of Berlin analysts, because the first two were actually in Berlin, and they were brought there for help. And it's so clear if you look at, and this is in my book too. If you look at the records, nobody knew what to make of these traumatized children. One one guy says that this boy whose mother was killed in front of him in Auschwitz was neurotic because he was too, he was over-involved with his mother um, and and related that to Oedipal issues. Sometimes they just would act puzzled about these people. And the interesting thing was so much of, so much of the, of the writing was indeed in German. It wasn't in Hebrew. It certainly wasn't in Yiddish, but it wasn't in Hebrew as though they were preserving their lives before the war because the Berlin Institute was where a lot of them were from. A lot of the people that got out early clearly were German Jews because they had forewarning from 1933 on, and they had opportunities especially to go to Israel with the Havara Agreement, which which was a bizarre agreement where they were given, um, um, you know, special compensation and all that, and and their goods from Germany were allowed to be shipped in more easily. Um, that was the early part of the final solution, which was to get rid of the Jews by shipping them out. Um, and so um, it's a bizarre thing. And then I interviewed Eleni Kogan, who was the protege of Hillel Klein, who was himself a survivor who came to Israel and started being interested in other survivors he died tragically young and sort of passed the, his torch on to Eleni Kogan. And she would, she said to me that she, in the, in the mid eighties, she would meet these patients who had been in long analyses or maybe two analyses like in the fifties and the sixties. And they still had so many symptoms. And she would say to them based on her training with Klein, did you ever talk about your parents trauma in the show? Did you ever talk about your childhood in, in the DP camp? Did you ever? And they would all say no. And they would 
invariably break down or sort of this flow of associations would come out. It was remarkable. It was shocking. It was overwhelming, she said, um, because it had been kept kept apart and, and ignored and denied so that they could build a new Jew and pick up the pieces and move on, um, which is understandable. But when you think of the individuals who suffered, it's a lot less understandable. Uh, and I suppose, I mean, at the same time in America, there was an, uh, an interpersonal shift, a relational shift, which, which seems to have helped uh, patients to start to talk about trauma and, to, and for analysts to talk about trauma, uh, as well as this the generational shift, but also the, the theoretical shift that was also going on. How, does, how did that right. play into it? Well, you know, I think for, for a long time, the relational analysts, well, relational is very recent, so uh, interpersonal analysts were really marginalized. You know, uh, we were not allowed to participate in any of the big meetings. We weren't allowed to join the IPA, let alone the APA. Um, we were considered like the lunatic fringe. Um, and um, I think that people like Dory Laub, who was also a Shoah survivor as a baby and, and a young boy and he is interviewed in my book in ways that are very moving and he's very open and um, he said that in in the 70s when he started to write about this and part of why he started to write about it was that he went back to Israel in the army as a psychiatrist uh, during the the war and most of the of the soldiers that were referred to him for PTSD were the children of Shoah survivors. And he couldn't ignore this fact because it was so overwhelming. But he said he was, in my book, he says something like, I was non-existent to the American. They never invited me anywhere. I wasn't even invited to speak at my own institute, which was the the Western New England Institute. Um, and he spoke about really famous um, supervisors who he thought were brilliant and sensitive who wouldn't allow him to interpret to his patients that what happened to them in childhood or adulthood had an impact. He tells a story in my book of one woman whose whose father was lost, an American Army gen- sergeant or general. I can't even remember. It's I should remember since I wrote it. But anyway, um, that um, that was lost at sea and never in the Pacific and. Um, his supervisor, who was really smart and who he really respected, kept telling him to interpret her her angst and her negative transference as Oedipal. And it was so bad, and she would scream at him so loud that his office mates would come out and say, what are you doing to this woman? And he knew in his soul that he would, should have talked about the family trauma, but he really, he, he, he wouldn't have been able to graduate. And years later, he became friends with, um, the um, the analyst who was a supervisor who kind of agreed. But I think the real shift started happening, you know, when the baby boomers came of age. You know, remember Steve Mitchell and, and Jay Greenberg were baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And there was such a, uh, you know, a, a swell of people. And I think actually the, you know, the show had so many implications and so, so many uh, um you know, there was such an afterlife. Uh, one of them was that I think people started questioning authority and science, you know, because look what it, what it gave us, you know, Auschwitz and Hiroshima. And 
nothing was sacred anymore and rules and theories were no longer um, truth with a capital T. But I think it took a very long time for psychoanalysis to catch up, you know, deconstructing theory, um, deconstructing power. That was in the other academic disciplines. And, you know, psychoanalysis considers itself a very heady discipline. In addition to being a technique for treating people who are suffering, it's also a world of ideas. And we were so far behind literature, you know, um, history, um, in in a postmodern sensibility. And I think at least in part this has to do with the rigidity of having had trauma and needing to preserve, and needing not to know, and needing not to challenge. Um, a sort of a narrow, you know, self-system, as Sullivan would say, or a closed circle, as Fairbairn would yes. say. Um, and especially because what we would need to know was context, and the context was kind of, you know, unbearable. Um, so that's, so, you know, I think the fact that we're in, that the White Institute, where I'm saying I always, you know, everyone speaks from their own family tree. But um, uh, the fact that the White Institute has been invited to join the American Psychoanalytic Institute is something that we couldn't have dreamed of even, you know, maybe even 10 years ago. I mean it. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, the implications are, I think, not only long-lasting, but still going on today uh, in ter- with regard to training and psychoanalytic institutes. Uh, there's, uh, it seems to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that the balkanization of of institutes is part of human nature. I mean, again, I don't want to be reductive. I don't want to say, you know, let's look at the whole world through the lens of the Shoah. You know, that's as bad as looking at the whole world through the through the lens of drives. You know, I, I actually think I believe in drives, but it's not, not the only thing I believe in. But it's true, I think, that in addition to human nature, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, <laughs> so many words for it, fancy and otherwise, um, that I think that the balkanization does have something to do with enacting the conflict, the inclusion, the exclusion, you know, the in-group, the out-group, the pariahs, and, um, you know, the objectification of the other, enacting something that really happened to them in spades um, because it really was so vehement. And so, um, you know, they would say it was in the name of intellectual ferment, but really, but really it was, I think, very emotionally laden and what, what the old analysts would call overdetermined, you know. Uh, one of the interesting chapters in the book, and I believe you uh, maybe may have written an article about this prior to the book, was was the practice of psychoanalysis in Germany during the war. Uh, what can you say about what it what was going on that with analysts there? Uh, and there there was a, a, at least an attempt to practice, or it was controlled by by uh, by by the Nazis. Or um, well, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Thank you, because it's hard to remember. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very long and painful story. I mean, the first thing is that the Berlin Institute was the jewel in Freud's crown. Vienna, you know, which is a smaller city, which was his city, never meant as much to him as Berlin. And, you know, you think about it, Abraham, who really began object relations theory, you know, Klein used him as a mentor, um, and 
Reich, who really started talking about character and character analysis, and the so-called political Freudians, Jacobson, Fenekel, who I talk about in my book, who really were able to give cultural critiques um, and to apply psychoanalysis to culture. They were all there. So all the really exciting stuff was happening, the cutting-edge stuff. And then, you know, it's, it, as almost as a, you know, as the epitome of what went wrong, um, it was handed over to Matthias Goring, who was the cousin of Field Marshal Goring, and became known vernacularly as the Goring Institute. I mean, it was what happened there was quite complicated because there were some people, Carl Landauer, for example, um, who really tried with uh, with and very bravely to keep doing analysis in their office, and um, turns out some of them, like him, were actually working for the underground. And he was eventually um, actually um, imprisoned and killed for working in the underground. So I don't think it's fair to say that everything was completely Nazified or dead. But, you know, there is the other argument, and these are all controversial arguments, that you can't really practice psychoanalysis in a totalitarian regime because... The cornerstone of analysis is notion of freedom, you know, or the freedom to think and feel whatever it is you think and feel. And the context, ironically, at a time when context wasn't valued, there are critiques that say that uh, psychoanalysis just couldn't be practiced. And indeed, there were terrible things that happened, um, like curing, quote unquote, homosexuals or killing them. Because people weren't viewed as individuals. They were viewed as the Volk. They were this entity that served the state, and if the Volk wasn't with the state, then that was a disaster to the to the regime, to the body politic, literally and figuratively. And if there was someone who wasn't going along, it was like a pathogen that you had to get rid of, to destroy. I mean, it was so inhuman. And some of these people, you know, like this guy Mueller Branschweig, who was trained, you know, by like by Hans Sachs and for its inner circle, you know, they slowly became more and more Nazified. I mean, it just shows you that kind of how context changes people and and affects them so profoundly, despite their earlier training. But the, the sadder thing yet was what happened after, which was that the groups were split. Um, and it was really like a false split. And the split seemed to be along theoretical lines having to do with Neo-Freudian, which was a term that was used that really meant n- not not psychoanalytic. <laughs> it was like a nice little term. They used to refer to one student as Neo-Freudian and the Freudians. And, but really the underlying, I think, message is that one institute was a Nazi institute and the other one wasn't. And it was this way of sort of passing the guilt back and forth. Um, and then, and not taking responsibility for the guilt and not facing and mourning the losses and not facing the shame and the guilt. And it, to this day, actually, it's divided in, in Germany. Mm. Um, so, and I don't think it ever, I, I was just in Frankfurt to present my book and it was very interesting, but, and I, it was very interesting how interested they are in the Shoah. Mm. Um, it's going to sound really cynical, but I think it helps that almost all the Nazis are dead. But but it's also, you know, um, makes sense that they should and are interested, and I'm grateful that they are. Um, 
But I don't think it's the vital place, say, that France is or England is, uh, still is, you know, or Italy or South America. There are so many vital psychoanalytic, more than ever now, um, you know, strongholds, um, especially since the, the heir parents, the, the Viennese ecopsychologists who came to New York, who, you know, had touched Freud's robes and so were anointed. They ran psychoanalysis as a tight ship from America so that the American Psychoanalytic Association controlled the International Psychoanalytic Association and seen not the other way around. That's no longer true, which is kind of wonderful because there's stuff going all around the world, which I think only deepens and enriches us. We're getting more and more interested in it. But in Germany, I still think it's there's an anemic kind of, you know, aftermath. Uh, response. Um, there's an inhibition and there's, it was very poignant. Well, I certainly had not heard much about this. I was wondering how you did the research for this part of the book. Uh, it sounds, it seems like a pretty much of a hidden history. Um, well, I, I was able uh, to get in contact with Regine Lockhart, who was, you know, in in Europe, many, many people know this, but, you know, just like we had the student movement uh, which was focused on the Vietnam War. Um, really, it was all over, all over the Western world. There was a student movement in response to the baby boom and a deconstruction of authority and a questioning. And in in Germany, it was really, um, really trying to out all the Nazis and the generation that participated in in Nazism and were silent. And actually, Regine Lockhart was a part of a group of, of psychologists at university who wanted access to the papers of the Goring Institute, which were not being released. And we're talking about the mid-80s and or early 80s. And they actually stormed the barricades to get access. So she had a lot, and she wrote a book which hasn't been translated into English yet. I hope it will be. On what, you know, on national socialism in psychoanalysis in Germany. And she she has a group that she uh, that meet in her office in Berlin once a month, and it's interesting because they're a really diverse group. They're Kleinians, they're Freudians, they're more relational oriented people. Um, and what brings them together is this interest in the history of psychoanalysis in Germany. Um, and I sat with them, and it was very moving and interesting to me. Um, and that's how I got it. But there, there's, there is, if people are interested, there's also still a lot of controversy about what happened and what didn't. And there are plenty of books. There's a book by Cox, C-O-C-S, on it. That's probably the definitive text. And he revised it again in the late 90s. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, you know, and, and again, I think that the, um, the extraordinary business meetings of the British Institute are also an, a really interesting read. Um, that people can get a hold of. I mean, but first read my book. We also said with the international flavor that you that you mentioned, we uh, we should talk about France and uh, and Lacan and 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 their part at, during that time. Uh huh. Well, um, French psychoanalysis, which is only I think only in the more recent years, been really interesting to Americans. Um, yeah, there's been quite a resurgence, it seems. Right, right. I mean, the French, the Lacanians and Lacan himself, really did have this take on America 
an American psychoanalysis uh, that it was sanitized and medicalized, uh, which, you know, was said about um, by, by many people, but absolutely by them. And Lacan's whole notion of going back to the real Freud had a lot to do with that. Also, the mighty power of the American psychoanalytic and, again, the heirs apparent, the Hartman, Christ, and and Lowenstein, that, you know, they knew what was act and what wasn't. And Lacan was sort of pushing back and saying, wait a minute, you know, the spirit is missing. Um, this is a radical theory. It's not, you know, the whole idea that in America there are happy endings, that things can be fixed, that there are answers, that that you can start new, that anyone can be president. You know, this optimistic, mm-hmm. not not at all romantic European view of um, the tragedy of being human. And, I mean, I think his whole notion of split, not that I know much about Lacan. I tried very hard to learn about Lacan to write the book. I read Lacan for Beginners, which is basically a cartoon. <laughs> then I read Fink, and I read the other, you know, I read I read um, Rudinesco, who wrote a biography of Lacan, and then I read Ecree. Um So I think I know a little. Um, but it took me, I need to read three primers before I, sure. primers. So, but, you know, the whole idea of the split and how the split can't be fixed. It's inevitable that there's a split between what you wish for and what you can have. There's a split between reality and fantasy, that there's a irreconcilable split in the human condition. It's something that's not particularly American. You know, compare that to the conflict-free sphere of the ego. And it's true that America's the land of opportunity and America's the new world and it's irresistible not to have those fantasies. But I think that that was very much embraced by the emigres who, you know, really wrote the book on post-war psychoanalysis in the world. Um, and um, I think also that there was this incredible need to not know about what was indescribable and unfathomable, which when you think about it is the Shoah. I mean, there's no explanation for evil. There's no way to mentalize it. There's no way to um, verbalize it. It's the real. It's the Lacanian real. It can't be signified, um, and it's very disorganizing. And that's you know, and that's something that I think they, they that that you know, Lacan would say um, in, a, in his op- opposition to American psychoanalysis. Um, in my book about France, I also talk about my French family mm-hmm. because you know, the notion of subjectivity. Uh, I feel like it was important for me to be mindful of my subjectivity because, you know, as much as we celebrate subjectivity, it can mm-hmm. also go awry and you can over-personalize and you can um, uh, distort another person's experience because you're so preoccupied with your own. Um, so I did try to talk about my struggle to to be present in, an, you know, as, as, as the grandchildren of French Jews, but also... Um, to not over-identify. I mean, it's, it's, of course, there's no way you can do it right, but at least the mindfulness, the awareness is everything. Um, we're coming to the, it, it's just so, so interesting. We're coming to the end. There's so much more in the book to talk about. Uh, but I was wondering if there's anything else you'd like to say before we, before we finish. Well, there is something I'd like to say, which is that one of the, one of the most extraordinary things about writing the book was talking to people in my generation, 
who were mentored by people in the Showa generation and to come up with this, and I hope this doesn't make me sound like an idiotic, an idiotically happy American, but although, you know, I am an American, um, that the mentors didn't just pass down trauma. You know, we talk about intergenerational um, transmission of trauma, which is, I think, a very real thing. And I'm so grateful that it's now on the scene and, you know, other people have embellished it so much, like Fonagy and, you know. But um, that the idea that these people also gave this generation a feeling of hope and strength. Robert Prince from NYU, who has written a lot about intergenerational transmission and was not initially accepted because it was so counter to the canonical centrality of sexuality and the unconscious structure, you know, the structural model. Um, speaks about Judith Kestenberg and Milton Kestenberg, a lawyer who actually got was 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 central in getting reparations for American survivors, and how Judith Kestenberg, who studied children of the Shoah, studied generations, studied development of babies, was just this incredible. She he called her a powerhouse of a woman, you know, and her entire family was killed in Poland. Or I have um, another colleague, um, Evelyn Hartman. Who, whose um, mentor was Alberta Jalita, who was actually trained in um, I, I, at Columbia Psychoanalytic, but became really the uh, associated with the White Institute because of of her sensibility and how she's um, Evelyn writes in the book about how um, how Jalita helped her to bear what felt unbearable and helped people to mourn, to go that long, hard way, because she could do that, because of what she lived through. So these are not people who are broken and distorted by the Shoah, or people who are um, unable to participate fully as people, as analysts, as teachers, just the opposite. They imparted great wisdom and strength to the people who are now working in the field. And Anne Ornstein's another really good example of that. I think Anne Ornstein, me and Anne Ornstein had a, um, an interpersonal experience, a relational experience that changed me profoundly that's in the book. And I became aware of my tendency to pathologize Shoah victims and my inability to believe in, you know, the strength and the and the generativity that can come from having suffered, um, and we really duked it out, me and me and Anna, um, and it was very helpful. Um, so I want—I mean, I think it's important to to know that that's also true. I'm going to speak for my subjectivity and say I think it's a wonderful book. Uh, I know I'm being a partial there. But um, I think it's a it's a really essential reading for anyone uh, in the field and, and not only for people in the field and that it's a it's a great companion piece to uh, George McCary's book that you mentioned, uh, as well as Lou Aaron's book, Psychotherapy for the People. So I just wanted to thank you uh, for writing it. So. Well, thank you so much for having me and for interviewing me. Uh, this has been uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis. I've been speaking with Emily Kurloff and this is Christopher Bandini. Until next time. Thank you.